Good morning, everyone. So welcome back. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy Epiphany to all of you. I hope that you had a good holiday, and I'm ready to get going on the second half. So let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for a new year, and we ask that you bless our time together, that you open us up, make space inside us for your spirit to fill us up, and move us in different ways that we may be agents of change in your world, that all of us will grow closer to the gospel hope that you have given us in the example of Jesus Christ. Bless all our friends who need your healing touch. Bless all those who we love and see no longer, and give us the hope of your everlasting life. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we finished chapters 1 through 12 in the fall, and we've got just a few more than that in this spring semester. And so I want to make sure that you all have our updated bookmark. It is the purple one. The purple bookmark replaces the blue bookmark, and we will go all the way through May 1st. So May 1st is going to be our last Wednesday together, and I don't think we even skip a single Wednesday. Uh, yes, we do. Spring break is March 13th, so that is the only Wednesday where we will not meet between now and May 1st. So you can make a quick note of March 13th, but it's all right here in the bookmark, and you should have received an email with the same information on it. If you are not on our email list, basically, if you have not received an email from Susan Kalen about this class, you are not on our list, and we'd love to make sure that you are, just in case there are any last-minute changes, and also you get this scheduled digitally. And so there are sign-up sheets at the doors outside the chapel as you leave today. Make sure you sign up, and we will get you on that list. Today we are looking at chapter 13. Now, just a recap of Acts, like we talked about at the very beginning, Acts is really divided into two sections. The first section is focused mostly on Peter and on the church in Jerusalem. The second section shifts toward Paul and the church outside Jerusalem, and he ultimately lands in Rome. And so you have this shift from Peter to Paul and from Jerusalem to Rome, and more broadly from Jews to everyone. That's really the shift that we have in Acts. It's pretty much divided half and half. But what we see today is the first shift, that first real pivot away from Jerusalem and the Jewish people directly. And now we're moving into the world outside of Jerusalem and explicitly going to non-Jews, the Gentiles, and telling them about Jesus. So as we get into this section, there are a few things that we need to know in order to be able to follow through, and that's geography. And I thought about drawing a map. We'll see if I do. So looking at chapter 13, there are really four sections. The first section is that Saul and Barnabas are commissioned. The second section and I'll, I'll have a word about Saul. I'm about to pivot with his name, and we'll make sure that we understand why that happens. The second section is that Saul and Barnabas go to Cyprus. The third section is Paul's address in Antioch. 
And the, sec and the last section is the message to the Gentiles. So you will note, if you are paying attention, that I started chapter 13 by saying Saul and Barnabas and Saul and Barnabas, and then section 3 of this chapter, we switch to Paul. So here's a quick word about what's going on here. Saul is the Hebrew version of Paul, or you can say it backwards. Paul is the Greek version of Saul. There is not a moment when he gets a name change like a magic wand. What he does in this chapter is he begins to refer to himself with his Greek name. And that's the big pivot that is representative of the pivot that's made in this chapter, where he has been Saul because the focus has been within the Jewish community and explaining what Jesus means within the Jewish context. In this chapter, Saul pivots outside of the Jewish community. And as he begins to really address and focus on non-Jews or Gentiles, he is beginning to use his non-Jewish version of his name. So he starts going by Paul, because Paul is what he would be called outside of the Jewish world in the places where they would speak a lot of Greek and or Latin. Does that make sense? Okay, so there is no, your name is now something else. It's just simply, he's going with the Greek version. Also in this chapter, we are traveling between multiple places. For those of you who have the N.T. Wright book, there are some helpful maps in this section of that book. But for those of you who don't, or those of you listening at home, we're going to do a quickie little map, because I can't resist. So, you know that the Mediterranean, you've got Turkey, and then Egypt. So here's Turkey. You've got Israel over here. And Egypt down here. Egypt. And the Mediterranean is right here. We need to know three different places today. The first place we need to know is Antioch. The second place, Cyprus. And the third place, Antioch. That's very confusing, so I'm going to tell you what is happening here. We've got Antioch of Syria, which is north of Israel, right? Syria still today is north of Israel. And so there's a city, Antioch, and typically this is referred to as just Antioch, right? If you ever hear just Antioch, that's going to be Syrian Antioch. The second place we need to know about is Cyprus. Cyprus is a little island that is tucked up into the armpit of Asia Minor, and Cyprus is where they go from Antioch. Then they travel up into Turkey, where they go to Antioch of Pisidia. So we've got two different Antiochs today, and I want to make sure that we are clear about the direction that they're traveling in. They start here, go to Cyprus, and then they go from Cyprus up to Antioch of Pisidia. Any questions about that geography? They're decent distances, yes. Yes, yeah, so the Antioch in Syria would be, is a, basically a coastal port city. And so traveling to Cyprus is not 
that difficult because there's not a lot of distance between the coasts. Cyprus, I didn't draw it quite this way. Cyprus is really tucked up in there, so it's not, it's not nothing, but it wouldn't be the hardest kind of boat trip. It wouldn't be as if they were sailing to Rome, which would be much farther, or even to Greece. Who's paying for all this? That's a really good question. So remember that, it's not the Queen Mary, remember that Paul is not a poor, uneducated person. We don't know. The answer is, we don't know. But it is not inconceivable that Paul would not have been able to make some of this happen himself. So if we remember back, Paul is from the area in Turkey called Tarsus. So Tarsus is kind of over here, a little southeast of Antioch of Pisidia. So Paul is in Tarsus, and Paul was born into a free family, which is why he is a Roman citizen. However, he is born into a Jewish family. And so most scholars think, although we don't have actual evidence for this, that as a, as a Jewish family, they would have worked for a wealthy Roman family in some capacity at some point and then been given their freedom as an estate gift. It was common that uh, servants who were kind of uh, the top-tier servants within a household, perhaps that could be an accountant or someone like that for a wealthy family may upon the death of the matriarch or patriarch be gifted their freedom and when that happens it was a weird legal loophole they then became roman citizens too now they're no less jewish because they're roman citizens but he was not the kind of jewish person that we hear about mostly who lived down in judea in today's israel because they would not have been Roman citizens. They were really part of a vassal state of Rome. Paul would have come from a family that would have been probably wealthier, almost certainly wealthier, not necessarily wealthy, but wealthy enough that they would have had access to better education. So we know that Paul, as a young person, was extremely well-educated. He was multilingual. He was a legal scholar. He had... Uh, studied with Gamaliel down in Jerusalem, who was one of the best Jewish legal scholars of all time. So he was extremely smart. That very well could have translated into either being connected to people with means or having those means himself. So when we start to see him travel, he could have contributed something. It could also be that these Gentile communities that he's helping to raise up are also very well connected and have the wealth to send him out. That's an important dynamic in Antioch, or just Antioch of Syria. Antioch, the Syrian Antioch, has become at this point in Acts incredibly important and strong. The Christian community in Jerusalem is still the strongest, but Antioch in Syria is coming up fast. Mostly that's because Syrian Antioch did not have the formal structure of Judaism that allowed the people to resist the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. 
And I say all that because, as we know, if you're a, an established religious person, it is much harder for you to decide that you like some other religion than if you were just kind of floating out there without any religious anger, right? If you just didn't have much of a religious identity, it's a lot easier for you to hear a story that compels you to make a commitment to some religious way of being than it is if you were raised up in a very specific religious tradition. And that's just the difference between Jerusalem and Antioch at this point, is Antioch had a lot of people who just simply weren't that connected to any kind of religious identity. So as those Jews go up, and if you hearken back to a few chapters ago, it was getting harder and harder to be in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of Christ followers there. But as they grew, they became more and more annoying and concerning to the people who were in charge. And so we saw people like Paul leave Jerusalem, and we saw many of those other people leave and begin to preach outside of that city because it was just easier. There, there were less hurdles that they had to jump, and people were more willing to listen to what they had to say. That's happened in Antioch. It's not that far. Antioch would probably be 90 to 100 miles north of Nazareth and Galilee. So if you imagine Jerusalem is in the center of Israel, you're about 70 or so miles to Nazareth. You're probably another 70 to 90 miles to Antioch. That's not an easy journey when you're walking, but we know that that's not that far. I mean, if you wanted to do it, you could do it. You have to plan it, but it's doable. And so that's where a lot of those early leaders went when it just got too difficult in Jerusalem. All of that is to say, the Antioch community was strong enough to have gotten him a boat to sail to Cyprus. That's completely conceivable because they would have had more means than the people in Jerusalem. All right, any other questions about the geography before we jump in? All right, so at the very beginning of this chapter, just a few verses, Saul and Barnabas are commissioned. They are part of the leadership in Antioch, part of the leadership that's been growing this church, and the Spirit marks them as having some kind of special task ahead of them. Doesn't specify what that task is going to be, but they are marked as being set apart from the rest of the community. And the community responds very well. They pray for them, they lay hands on them, and then they send them off. So if you look at verse three of chapter 13, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands and sent them off. Saul and Barnabas are really the first explicit missionaries that we see in Acts. Yes, others have gone somewhere else and then accidentally come upon an opportunity to talk about Jesus, but they've not explicitly been sent off by one Christian community to go begin another. And that's what happens here for the first time. Saul and Barnabas get on their boat, they sail to Cyprus, and in Cyprus, they have the opportunity to confront a group of people who are trying to mislead the leadership there away from the story of Jesus. Now that's just a little, little beginning. So now we're gonna jump into the second section where Saul and Barnabas actually go to Cyprus. So after their commissioning, they go on their way and they confront a magician 
and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and that just simply means son of Yeshua, which is kind of Joshua. That's more or less what that means, son of Joshua. And he is also called Elimas. And we get the same kind of pivot here with names from Saul to Paul to Bar-Jesus and Elimas. Same person, just a Jewish and a Greek version of his name. Elimas is somehow related to or friends with or acquaintances of the Roman proconsul in Cyprus, which is another word for governor. Rome just sent people out to govern small patches of the empire all over the place, and Cyprus would have been one of those patches. And the proconsul there is Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is a Roman governor. That is what proconsul means in your Bible. And Elimas is trying to influence Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is interested in these new people from Antioch. And he wants Paul and Barnabas to come and talk to him about what it is that they know, that they think they know, and that they're spreading. It's interesting here to note that this Roman proconsul on Cyprus anticipates their visit. It's not that Paul and Barnabas run into him, but he seeks them out to find out what it is that they are teaching. That's a very interesting note, because that means that the idea of this Christian group has spread enough through the Roman Empire that at least at the highest levels, they're beginning to hear that there's some group coming out of Judea that has an interesting idea about their way of life. And so this Sergius Paulus wants to hear what Saul and Barnabas have to say. But Elimas, who is that false prophet or magician, is not happy that the proconsul might end up liking their way of life more than his. So Elimas, as a bad guy, goes and tries to get Sergius Paulus to ignore Saul and Barnabas. And if you look at verse 9, Saul fights back. Saul says to Elimas, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now listen, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he went about groping for someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. The confrontation that happens here between Paul and Elimas, Saul at this point, sorry, Saul and Elimas, is something that we might read, although it's kind of funny, I want us to put ourselves in Saul's position and see how it feels to consider the confrontation of the gospel. Most of us have what I would call an inherited religion. We were taken to church by someone, and even if we stopped and started throughout our lives, the idea of Christianity was given to us at a very early age, and perhaps we've been in it our entire lives. We inherited this faith. When you inherit something, you have not necessarily earned it. 
And my guess is that for most of us in here, we've not made a critical shift in the way that we live in order to actually follow Jesus. I say that not to be judgmental or anything, but to just simply say for many people, they just kind of get in the groove and they go right along and church is good and they like it and people are nice and they go and we sing songs and it's nice. All of us think Jesus is nice and teaches some good stuff and maybe we should be nice too. But until something really shakes us to our core, most of us don't make a life-changing transformative decision to actually be a Christ follower. And I, I don't know if I've ever talked about it in here. I know I've talked about it in other places. My exposure first to the recovery community is what gave me that kind of idea. Because there's probably no better church than an AA meeting. Because what has happened is everyone's walked into that room knowing that they cannot do it on their own. They have been broken. And they have claimed that brokenness. And they want it to be better. And they ground that healing in something that is beyond them. In that truth of Christ. That is really what the gospel is about. Except for most of us, we can kind of ignore whatever's broken about us because it's not really too broken for us to have to deal with it. In this moment, Saul has the opportunity to be confrontational. And I wonder if any of us have really ever been confrontational for the gospel like this. I don't know that I really have. Um, I mean, I've been, you know, smart aleck before, and I can be sarcastic, perhaps. But to actually look at someone and say, you're evil, and you are leading this person astray, God will strike you down? Nope, I've never said that. <laughs> there is something about the first century that is so foreign to most of us except that I think there's so much about that first century that could become applicable to us in the 21st century in a new way. I certainly don't want to encourage you going around condemning people for the gospel, but I do think that if we are, if we are vulnerable enough to be honest about the way we live, we know that we've not likely really changed much about the way we live in order to be Christian. Most of the time, we take our Jesus at our convenience, right? If, and the most inconvenient thing we might do as a Christian is show up to volunteer somewhere when we kind of don't want to. Or maybe we go to the earlier service on Easter because it's just less crowded, right, when we really don't want to. I mean, that's about as inconvenient as most of it gets for most of us. If I were to ask you to consider a part of your life that you know you could change and make yourself more, uh, more in line with the way of Christ, but it would mean sacrificing stuff you like or people you like, 
I think that's the challenge that we have if we actually want to follow Jesus as fully as we can. We don't like this stuff because we like everyone to be important and special and good. And I think that we may be nudged in this chapter to consider that a person on their own might not be the way that helps us become better Christian people. And that someone has to actually engage with us in some deep gospel way in order for them to contribute to our faith life. That doesn't feel good to people who just want everyone to be okay. But perhaps, and I'll just stop with this, I want you to put in your mind if there's a relationship or a situation in your life that you know you could change, and it wouldn't be easy, but it would actually free you a bit more as a follower of Jesus, actually begin to transform you, not at your convenience, but in a pretty deep way, and play with the idea of doing something about it, and doing something about it with love. But love is not cheap, and love is not shallow. Love sometimes hurts, and it's good enough to hurt. Okay. I went totally off script, and so let's see. I don't know where I am. All right, let's keep going. So we've got, chat, we've got the third section here. So Saul and Barnabas do pretty well in Cyprus. They get this Roman proconsul to become a believer, which is part of the whole shift that Acts is going towards is that Rome and the Gentiles begin one by one by one to discover the truth of the gospel. They then leave and they go to Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch in Pisidia, as I said, is north of Cyprus up in Turkey. When they get to Antioch in Pisidia, they do what they do most often. And you'll see Paul do this over and over and over again. When Paul shows up to a new city, and wants to tell people about Jesus, he shows up to synagogue. Because in the synagogue worship, it was very common when someone of some substance, and Paul was that person, shows up that you might have a moment in the service when the local rabbi or teacher would invite that guest to come and speak and give a word to the congregation. We don't do this. There are many times when I will look out in the congregation and I may see a caller and I don't know who that person is. Now that we're in a caller, so my guess is that they're a priest and not just a costume person. And so <laughs> I could theoretically call them up and say, welcome guest, would you like to say a word to the congregation? Is that, have you ever seen that happen? Well, you would in a black church. Because I had this happen to me, I went with a friend to a funeral, and I made the mistake of wearing my collar. And I had not even gotten over the threshold of the door before one of the ushers had grabbed my arm and taken me straight up front to sit next to the preacher right in the dais up front. I've never in my life been in this church. I think I'm trying to remember if I could even in that moment remember the deceased person's name like I just I was there with my friend right I mean like I was there for her I wasn't there I, I don't know I didn't know this man and so 
they certainly said, you know, we'll ask you for a word uh, during the service. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is really what it would have been like in the synagogue. Paul, you know, Paul's in the neighborhood, right? If we're honest, Antioch and Pisidia is sort of the neighborhood, right? I mean, this, these Jews who lived in Turkey would not have been the ma majority people. So if you're down in Jerusalem and you're a Jew, you're, uh, there are lots of Jews in Jerusalem, right? So you may not know everybody, but when you're outside of that Jewish bubble, you probably know the other Jews, right? And if Paul really came from a family where he was that well-educated, he likely sort of knew some of the other people around. So when he shows up in Antioch of Pisidia and goes to the synagogue, he knows somebody, right? Somebody knows who he is. And at the moment when he, at the moment when they would have a guest speak, they go right to Paul and they say, would you like to say something to us? Paul does here what he will do over and over and over again. He takes that opportunity to unpack the whole story of Jesus. So let's take a look at this. We are in chapter 13, and we need to run, I don't know, sort of over to verse 18 or so, maybe 14. Paul gets up, and he says, uh, it's halfway through verse 16. Paul stood up and with a gesture began to speak. You Israelites and others who fear God, listen. And then he begins step by step by step going through the wilderness and or their delivery out of Egypt, their time in the wilderness, their delivery into the promised land from the people who are already living there, the period of judges, the naming of the prophet Samuel, and the kingdom rising up with Saul and David, and then does what Peter has done before, connects David to the root of Jesse that the prophet spoke of as delivering a Messiah, and Paul specifically uses the word Savior in, chapter tw in verse 23. Paul says Savior. Paul does not say what Jesus is saving them from, but Paul begins not just saying Messiah, but saying Savior. And then he continues by really pointing the finger at the Jewish people themselves. The principal challenge in Paul's address comes in, chapter, in verse 27. So let's turn to verse 27. Paul says, because the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize him, Jesus, or understand the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those words by condemning him. Even though they found no cause for a sentence of death, they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Paul in this structure unpacks the history of the Jewish people up to that point. And he does so in a way to make sure even the people in that synagogue who don't know who he is understand he knows what he's talking about. Why start from the beginning if not to just make sure everyone knows I know what I am saying. 
And once Paul proves his own knowledge and his own education, he says the Savior has come and it's Jesus and makes what I think is perhaps the hardest criticism of the Jewish people in the synagogue for us to hear, which is the Jews were waiting for this person and they heard the words every Sabbath and they still did not recognize him. And he was still condemned to death and died, but did not stay dead. And what he has done is something that no one else has done. The implication here being, you like Moses, and you like Samuel, and you like David, and you like all these great people. When they died, they stayed dead. Not Jesus. His salvation work was something unlike anyone else. And that is why you need to listen to what I'm saying. It's really what Paul is saying here. You hear these words over and over again. Don't be like those Jews who missed the message. You realize that what you've been waiting for has come. After that point, Luke leaves the synagogue, but he will come back the next week. And that's when things kind of go off the rails. So let's pause for a minute and consider the two big ideas of this chapter, the confrontation of the gospel and the idea that our religiosity can actually be what prevents us from seeing what God is doing in the world. All right, let's start with confrontation. We are not confrontational. We do not like conflict. We do not like anyone to not like anything. And so we will do everything possible to make sure not a single person is offended or put out of place. I can't tell you how many times people tell me, you know, take Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, we had, I don't know, 500 people here at 3 o'clock in this building. There was one person, though, who told somebody that they didn't like that thing, and so I heard about it. And what's the... The implication of me being told that someone didn't like that one thing is we've got to fix that thing because that one person didn't like it. And what I try to say, big heart, is they are valuable and they are good and we are glad they are here. And one person not liking that one thing does not mean that we will change that thing because all these other people liked it. And that alone makes some people like, start to sweat because anyone being unhappy about anything just starts to make us anxious, right? We will do anything we can to have someone like us. And how many times do we hear 10 or 20 compliments but one criticism and it all goes out the window and we hear that one criticism replayed in our mind over and over and over. It is human nature to basically ignore all of the good stuff and focus on the one small negative. What's interesting though, and this is a total aside, I like reading little science journals. Have you all read the studies that show, that really prove that our minds work to only remember the good stuff? Have you seen these studies? 
it's, they started years ago, but they've, there have been a few articles that have come out in the last year that show they studies with uh, people who are, I don't know exactly what the age was, um, but particularly those who have begun to have some memory loss that they can actually measure, the memories that stay are good, by and large. I can't be every single person. But as we go through life, we don't remember the bad stuff forever. At some point, we only remember the good stuff, not the bad stuff. And probably any of you who have raised children can attest to that, right? Because I, I don't know how many times I talk to a parent whose child is, you know, my age, and they just glow about their children. They were such great kids, right? And oftentimes you hear, like, I don't know what's happened now. They were such a great kid. Or how about you see on the news all the time when someone's done something awful, what do you hear a parent say every time? He was such a good kid, right? B.S. He was probably not a good kid. <laughs> you don't all of a sudden just, you know, go off and do something awful. Like, you, something about their childhood indicated that was a possibility, okay? <laughs> but it's natural to just remember the better stuff. What we see here with this kind of confrontation about the gospel is, I think, an opportunity for us to do a short-term hard thing for a long-term good thing. That's not what we like in the moment. In the moment, we like to do an easy short-term thing, even if the long-term thing is worse for it. And I think we have to flip and be willing to do a short-term harder thing if we know that in the long-term it is better. And so there's the confrontation piece. And here's where I think the rubber hits the road for us. Paul goes into the synagogue, and he says to these good Jewish people who are likely regular worshipers, I think because Luke does not say anything about it, this is not a high holy day, right? So you're talking about the people who, they go on the other Sundays too, or Saturdays. They are going on the Sabbath, not only when it's the high day, right? They're not the priesters. They're the people who are really there regularly. And Paul says, I know people like you. And the people like you down in Jerusalem heard this good stuff every week. And when Jesus came and fulfilled it, they missed. Don't be like them. That's us, people. Those of us who hear this good stuff every week. We hear scripture read to us every week. There is not a tradition out there that reads more scripture every worship service than Episcopalians. There are others who do as much as us, but we hear as much scripture read as any other Christian tradition. And yet, it is so easy for us to miss the power of those words because we like our habits. We like our stuff done the way we like it. And I had, I'm not joking, I had someone who I love say to me a few weeks ago that, you know, that nine o'clock service has gotten pretty full, they have to get here early now to get their pew. That's a real thing. And if you don't think that's, and you're like, ha, 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 oh no, I know where you sit. Like, I know all of you who actually come to church, I can tell you exactly where you sit. And I bet some of you have thought that you've got to go a little earlier now because you don't want to lose that spot. Someone said they had to sit four pews back. Like, 
I mean, shock. That kind of stuff, that's what we do, right? I mean, we love the stuff that we like. We like the predictability and the consistency. We don't like instability. And the gospel itself is something that is unpredictable because what it's really telling us is that God is at work. Now, that sounds good when we say the words, but if God's at work and if the Spirit is moving, that means stuff changes. Ah, uh, we like the Spirit, just don't change anything. <laughs> I think that this experience with Saul in the synagogue, particularly following the confrontation in Cyprus, is not accidental. Luke has not put these stories next to each other just for the sake of chronology. Luke is telling a deeper story. Never just take the surface of any story you read in the Bible, look around it and say, how can this be informed by what has already happened? And I think for us, it's not just a historic study. Yes, I want you to know what, Acts, what happened in Acts, but don't just leave it in the first century. Bring it now and say, how many of us are really open to things changing here, things changing about the way I live, Things changing in about the way I relate to other people in my life who might not be good for me and my faith. That's hard stuff. And so, last section of today's chapter gets kind of to the funny stuff. So Paul has already gone to the synagogue and spoken when invited and told the story of Jesus. Fast forward a week later, they show back up at the synagogue, and Paul has drawn a crowd. Now, the Jews who were there probably didn't mind Paul saying a lot of these things when they didn't think it would make much difference. But a week later, he's gotten a lot of attention, and those Jewish leaders are not happy. So let's look at the first half or two-thirds of this section, verse 44. I'm just going to read it because it's good. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and blaspheming. They contradicted what was spoken by Paul. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. You, uh, we are now turning to the Gentiles. Pause there. Paul is saying, God started with you, but you are not listening. And so now God is turning to the Gentiles. That is more than just Paul the person. What is happening in the grander theology of this moment is the idea of who is chosen. I've had people throughout the years ask me what it means that the Israelites were God's chosen people. Are they still God's chosen people? And if they are God's chosen people, are we not God's chosen people? I mean, that idea of chosen is pretty weighty. Paul, in a moment, explains what that chosen was really meant to be. God never chose the Israelites 
because they were better. God chose the Israelites because of Abraham's faithfulness generations ago, and because I think, I think, that God saw a hopefulness of the Jewish people to be the catalyst to transform the world. In fact, so much so that Jesus was Jewish, right? Jesus was not Christian. Jesus was Jew, and he was a good Jew. He was a very good Jewish man. The purpose of Jesus being Jewish is, again, not accidental. The Jewish people were chosen to be the lens and the vessel by which God's saving work happened for everyone in the world. Some of the Jewish people grasped onto the lessons of Christ to actually be that kind of transformation in the world, and some did not. We, as many of us in here, although some of us could be Jewish in here, we are likely mostly not Jewish or of Jewish ethnic or cultural descent, and yet we have also received the hopefulness of Christ because at this moment in history, God is shifting from going through the Jewish people to beginning to go to all people at once. And Paul just says that very quickly, since you reject it, it, the word of God, and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life, that's harsh, we are now turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is claiming this real shift, and as I noted at the beginning, we start in Acts, with the Jewish community in Jerusalem with Peter at the head. And we end in Acts in the Gentile community with Paul at the head. That is not accidental. It is the arc of God's work in the world. So let's continue. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord. And as many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Thus the word of the Lord spread throughout the region. Now we shift. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. So they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is what I was getting at a few minutes ago. They go into the city they say good words. They excite a lot of the Gentiles, but they incite the Jewish leadership. And those leaders do what they can, which is significant, to make sure Paul and Barnabas are run out of the city. And as they are run out of the city, they shake off the dust, and they are filled with joy as they move on to the next place. For most of us, that short-term conflict, that short-term bad experience, they were run out of the city, does not hold them back because they understand the long-term good that they did by being the catalyst for change 
in that city at that time. And I just, I love the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. That's funny. Those were the Episcopalians, right? <laughs> That's who they went out and got to get rid of those people who want to change stuff. So that's the end of our chapter, and Paul is on the move again. Paul is going on to the next city to do what he did in Antioch and in Cyprus, and we'll see more of that next week. And we've got time for maybe one or two questions or thoughts. Well, so what Madeline brings up that I will at least make sure you know about, a week from tomorrow is the Interfaith Panel sponsored by the Women of St. Michael that will be the second that follows the one done last January. And we have the same imam coming back, Omar Suleiman, and we have David Stern's wife, who is also a rabbi, Nancy Kasten. And so it will be Nancy, Omar, and me on the panel again. Amy Heller will facilitate again. And as I noted on Sunday, a lot of people said, what? Um, it's been viewed over a million times online since we did it last January. And so we want to do it again, and it will be totally different. We'll be able to ask more questions. Last time, Amy just had a stack of questions to ask, and sh we ran out of time. And as you can imagine, another 90 minutes is not going to even scratch the surface of what we could talk about. But one of the interesting ideas that I think engaged a lot of people last January was this idea that we are all clearly in our own traditions. And although the panel is called interfaith, it probably should be called multi-faith. That's sort of the the newer term, because what we don't want to imply is that we have basically taken all of these individual traditions and mixed them up into some jello mold of, of everyone's in the pool kind of thing. Instead, we have brought these individual traditions together to learn about each other. So there's respect and there's understanding. But I am not showing up to somehow defend a tradition outside of mine. I'm showing up as a Christian. And I want Omar to show up as a Muslim and Nancy to show up as a Jew. And we're going to explain where we actually do overlap, but not in that cheap way where it's just, we're all gonna, let's all, it's not a kumbaya moment. <laughs> what it is, is a moment when there is so much more that unifies us than divides us and to lift that up because our world is really good about telling us who's wrong and who's different and why we should be afraid. And I think we need more opportunities to talk about how people are similar in order to unify us so that we are never afraid and that we make every decision based on clarity and courage that all three of our traditions are given in the same way. And so I commend that to you. That's a week from tomorrow. On the 17th, it's gonna be in the church again. Last year, we really were at capacity. And so if you are interested in coming, which I hope you will come, just don't show up at 6.55. Um, come a little earlier and make sure you get a seat in the space because we don't have, we don't really have an overflow option. Um, we're going to just tell everyone to sit on laps and squeeze and, and get as many people in there as possible. But yes, the idea that we understand each other and that we don't water it down is going to be front and center at that discussion. So thank you all. I'll see you next week. Happy New Year.